This message first aired on the radio on November 13, 2003. We're going to start with Romans 2, verse 1, to pick up our context, and we're going to read a few verses today, which we're going to cover. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art, that judges. For when thou, wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. We have to remember from previously what such things are. Verse 3, And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering? not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But after your hard and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace to every man that works good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, for there is no respect of persons with God. Now we've looked here at Romans 2, 1 through 11. We took up the first two verses briefly yesterday. We pick up the context, and the context is a list of evil works. It's a list of heathen sins, which we found in Romans chapter 2, where we learned that they that don't acknowledge God, God doesn't acknowledge them, as it were. If people don't want anything to do with God, God will let them have to do with themselves. And then he gives them over to the kind of foolish mind or mind void of judgment that comes from willfully refusing to acknowledge that which you know to be true. Now the mind can destroy itself. When the mind turns on itself, it can destroy itself, and that is the teaching of the book of Romans. So the arrogant mind, which knows that there is a God in every single person, it is self-evident. Every single person knows intuitively knows intuitively. And, and the Greek language has a word for intuitive knowledge, and it uses it with respect to knowing that God is the Creator. And not only does it use it there, but also you actually, technically, as a human being, you get to know that God is a Creator. You can learn, you learn that He is the Creator. And how do you learn it? You learn it by the observation of His creation. So God created man to know himself, to know God. And God sees to it, as the designer and the creator, that you get to know who he is, at least to the extent that you know his eternal power and his Godhead. So therefore, now, having gotten to know that, when people become so dishonest in their minds that they refuse to acknowledge him, and even go further on to trade God in for the worship of nature, and even pictures of nature, or images, 
of various kinds. Then God turns men over to their own lusts, to the very reasons why they don't want to do with God. And men have their reasons for not acknowledging God. And the reason is not ignorance. This we know from the Bible. So men have their reasons for not acknowledging God, for refusing to give him glory, and the reason is not ignorance. The reason is the lust of their own flesh. And so God turns them over to the lust of their own flesh, and he turns them over to the mind that becomes so hostile to God. And that mind is called a mind void of judgment. Now we come and we have these ideas, man's judgment, God's judgment, We know that the gospel of Christ is the revelation not only of the righteousness of God in the judgment for our sins that he placed on the Lord Jesus Christ, but it is also the revelation of the wrath of God wherein he judges wicked men who refuse to receive him and his plan of salvation. And that double-edged sword is the gospel of Christ. Now, that being said here, then, the subject and the voice of the epistle turns to an individual voice. It turns from, what we might say, a third-person objective case to a a first-person personal voice, a second-person personal voice, excuse me, where the apostle begins now to say, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man. Well, he gets right down to it as if he's sitting down at a table with one fellow. And that's the voice that Romans takes. You are inexcusable, O man, you guy, you, whoever you are, that judges. Now, when we come to the word judge here, we have to be discriminating and understand what the Bible says about judgment, what the Bible doesn't say about judgment. First of all, God gives the vehicle of judgment to every man. Not only does he give the vehicle of judgment to every man, he gives every man the vehicle of correct judgment, of right judgment. Every single person is endowed with the capability of judging rightly. Now, when a person determines to indulge their lust and to not even acknowledge God, but to refuse God in any way, and becomes a fool because the fool says in his heart, no, God. Then God turns them over to the mind which becomes void of judgment, called in Romans chapter 1, verse 28, a reprobate mind or a mind void of judgment. Now, not being turned over to that reprobate mind, the scripture addresses the man who has the ability to judge, but now it critiques that judgment. And here's a thing that arrogant men do, by the way. One thing that arrogant men do who begin on the course of having a reprobate mind, they decide that they need to critique the Bible. Let me assure you, BibleStudy.net, we just preach the Bible. We do not critique the Bible. In fact, the Bible critiques us. The Bible is my critic. I am not a critic of the Bible. I am not a judge of the Bible. The Bible judges me. That's another way of putting it. And that's this word. Here, as the apostle changes the voice, the scriptures change the voice, you, O man, you are inexcusable, 
if you judge. And, of course, we all do judge. Now, many people, one of the most misquoted passages of Scripture, and it may be quoted accurately, but it's quoted out of context, and the old saw is true that a text without a context is a pretext, people who don't want to be reminded of their sins are constantly telling those of us who tell the truth out of the Scripture, judge not lest you be judged. Well, we have that statement, the Lord says, judge not. Here, this one is this part of the Scripture here. says, you know, oh man, you that judge, don't you judge yourself? And of course, the idea of the Scripture is that the spiritual man judges all things, but he starts with himself. He starts by judging himself. Now, having judged yourself to be a wicked sinner and receive the Savior, you have a mind of good judgment. You have a spiritual mind. You get a new mind. It's part of the new nature. And the spiritual man judges all things. Well, here now, we're not talking to the spiritual man. We're talking to the natural man. And we're reminded of the kind of people we're like. And now, here's the question. Do you think, O man, that judges them which do such things, and we all judge wickedness and righteousness? I get a big charge out of people to say, well, you shouldn't judge. Well, I mean, that's a judgment. You tell me not to judge. Well, aren't you judging me by saying what I should and shouldn't do? Well, you ought not to judge. Well, you know, you are the guy who says you shouldn't judge, and there you are judging me. This scripture is written to you. Here it is. Thinkest thou, O man, that judges them which do such things, and you do the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or here in Romans 2, verse 1. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest do the same things. And this is one of the things that comprises man. This is one of the funny little quirks about us. The thing that we judge in others are the things that we do. That's how we're so familiar with them. Hey, that's a lie. Well, I know what a lie is because I tell them. See? A liar knows what a lie is because he lies. And, uh, of course, the Scripture would commend here, and it is driving our thoughts to apply our proper reason toward ourself. Now, you who judge evil in others, and we all do that, do you think that you're going to escape the judgment of God for your evil? That is the very simple question of Romans chapter 2, verse 3. Thinkest thou, O man, that judges them which do such things, and you do the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now, that's a good question. It's a valid question. It's a question for all time. It's a question for all men. Do you think, you with the capability of judging whatsoever, do you think you are going to escape the judgment of God? Now, certainly you may escape your own judgment. You may escape the judgment of man. But do you who acknowledge God, do you think that you are going to escape God's judgment? If so, how are you going to do that? Or conversely, if you don't think that you're going to escape God's judgment, do you despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance, his patient waiting and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? So so there's a couple of questions here. 
First of all, do you think you're going to escape the judgment of God? The obvious answer to that is if you think you're going to escape God, being that he is God, I mean, aren't you a, a foolish person? Of course you are. Then the second question is this. You say, well, no, I don't, I don't think I'm going to escape the judgment of God. Then the, now the question is, well, what's keeping you then from God's plan of salvation? Are you despising his goodness? Are you despising his forbearance, his putting up with you, and long-suffering, his patience? Are you despising the fact that he's good and that he puts up with you and that he's waiting, not knowing that the entire purpose of this goodness about God, his forbearance, his patience, his putting up with you, his goodness, do you not know that the goodness of God is there to lead you to change your mind and not merely to live contentedly as a hostile enemy by wicked works in your mind? Don't you know that? Well, if you don't know that, then the book of Romans is for you, and it's going to lay out for you your condemnation if you don't turn from that thought. And that's what repentance is about, and we'll talk about that when we come back after this brief message. Hope you stay with us. BibleStudy.net Well, we look into the Scriptures. We find out that God is arresting your thoughts. God would reason with you if you'll stay reasonable. God will persuade you that you're a sinner, and then God will invite you to come to himself. Well, the reason to come, or the reasons to come to the Lord Jesus Christ are very clear, but we, we don't ask you to come unreasonably. We ask you to come reasonably after you have thought carefully, and that's what the Word of God says here in Romans chapter 2. In fact, Romans chapter 2 helps us with what some people call biblical psychology. Now, I don't like popular psychology by any means. In fact, it's almost entirely false, it's almost entirely fallacious, and it's put together, broadly speaking, by those who profess themselves to be wise and become fools. But the Bible is the real source to learn about oneself. And I'll tell you this, you'll never know yourself until you know God. To find out about yourself, you just have to inquire of the maker and the designer. And here it tells us that not only are you inexcusable for failing to acknowledge God, but you're also inexcusable if you don't recognize that the things that you judge to be wrong are things that you yourself do. And so it is the case that you are your own prosecutor, that you are a condemned person, that you are self-condemned. Insofar as when you judge right and wrong, you actually are condemning yourself because you do the right and wrong things that you judge. That's Romans chapter 2, verse 1. And now here is a very strong statement in verse 2 where the apostle says, we are sure the judgment of God, and, and this we, that means you and me both, O oh man. 
we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth, that is, it's righteous, against them that do things. So here you are, you know you do things, evil things. You know this instinctively, you don't even have to get to know this. You just know it's true when you know who God is, that it's correct for him to judge you for that. It's why you are guilty persons, why you act so guiltily. It's why you act out of a bad conscience, why you have a bad conscience. Jiminy Cricket tells you, let your conscience be your guide. I say to you, don't you understand why you have a bad conscience? And how does it get good? Only God can make your conscience good. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you receive him as his Savior, you get a good conscience. That's part of the new creation. You get a good conscience, you get correct judgment of evil. You've judged yourself. You found a Savior. You found yourself in need of a Savior. You found out who the Savior is, and now your good conscience wants to answer back to God. He's spoken to you about his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you want to answer back to him with your new good conscience something appropriate. And God says, well, that's what baptism is. But we'll get to that at some other time, perhaps the sixth chapter. But here now, the question is, do you think you're going to escape? And the answer is no, you ought not think you're going to escape God. And the second question is, are you despising God for who he is? I mean, his goodness, do you not understand that his goodness, that is, his patient living with your nasty self and putting up with you, and the riches that he offers you, that is, salvation from the consequences of your own behavior, And he gave us his only begotten son. What great riches. So now do you regard this as something to be despised? Or do you consider the purpose of God being the way he is and having provided his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, for your benefit because of your sins? Do you consider it properly that it is supposed to lead you to this word repentance? Now, people don't understand the word repentance. It is the Greek word metanoia, metanoia, and it has to do with the mind. It has to do with a changing of the mind. In fact, that is the best way we can say is changing your mind. We talk about a biblical psychology, that is to say, we talk about the way that the guilty mind works, the way that God works with your mind, the way that God would have you to change your mind. And everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ changes their mind. And they begin to judge themselves correctly, that is, as a sinner. Or are you going to fail to do that? And remember this. God commands all men everywhere to change their minds and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He commands it. Now, Does this mean reform your life? No, it doesn't. It means to change your mind. That is to say, the change of mind here that is called repentance is actually to correctly assess your own position with God. Or are you going to continue with your hard, impenitent heart? That's what the Scripture says. Your hard, or after your hardness. Now, what's this hardness? This is something that we have. We have hardness and impenitence. That is to say, a resistance to have our mind changed and persuaded by God. So are you going to remain hard, impenetrable, and 
impenitent, that is to say, unable to be persuaded, and treasure up to yourself wrath against the day of wrath when the righteous judgment of God is revealed. Are you going to do that? Well, that would be unreasonable. That would be a bit a bit crazy. That would be a bit nutty. But actually, that is exactly the words that the Scripture uses for that kind of mind. It is a senseless mind. Only a person that gets beyond their senses would think that. Because God will, as verse 6 tells us, render to every man according to his deeds. Now, Romans 2, verse 7. To them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, now this is to the living. After all, you can't seek immortality once you have found out that you're mortal. But unto them who want to contend and argue about these matters that are so simple, and do not obey the truth, or let, let me put it this way, who willfully refuse to be persuaded by the truth, but instead are persuaded by unrighteousness, or who are given over to evil, indignation, and wrath. This is the things that are set before you. Will you be persuaded by the truth? If you, will, if you refuse to be persuaded by the truth, you will then give yourself over to unrighteousness or the evil things of this life, which were detailed in Romans 2. We won't go through them again. And therefore, win for yourself indignation and wrath. Now, as a preacher, let me just say, in my experience as a preacher... I do come up with these issues with people from time to time in a very direct way. And I've seen a great number of people purposely, willfully refuse to acknowledge the truth. It's been extreme in some cases. It's been extreme in some cases. It's so blatantly obvious. In other cases, it's a little more subtle, sort of like the Apostle Paul found at Mars Hill. We just don't want to hear any more of this. And the reason that people don't want to hear any more about what God has to say out of the Scriptures is that they're afraid that they'll become persuaded. They're afraid they'll become persuaded. They, they no longer want to lend their minds to the persuadability and the strong arguments of the Scripture because they don't want their mind to change because they realize that if they assess life correctly, they're going to have to go about it differently. Because their deeds, they realize their deeds are evil. Now that's what the gospel teaches. Men do not believe because they love darkness rather than light in order to accommodate the, their evil deeds. They don't want to get it right. They like having it wrong. I just had a conversation with a man a couple of days ago. And he had it wrong, and he believed he had it wrong. I said, you know, you've got that wrong, you've got that wrong. Yeah, you're probably right, I got that wrong. Well, do you want to get it right? No, I don't. Well, I can just show you a couple things in the Bible and then change your mind, you have it right. No, I, I, no, I don't want to do that. Leave me alone. That's what they told Paul at Mars Hill. Oh, they had a little Mars Hill in, in Athens at the Areopagus where all the intelligentsia hung out the leaders of Athens. 
And he was being uh, persuasive. He was cutting to the heart of matters. And they said, well, we'll hear from you some other time. But they didn't schedule him. And they never did hear from him again. And in Athens, there's no evidence from that visit. There's no record in the Scripture of his visit to the Areopagus there that a single person received the Lord as their Savior. Now, those who refuse to be persuaded, God will bring indignation and wrath. Verse 9 of Romans chapter 2. Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that does evil, the Jew first and also the Gentile. Very interesting. The truth of the Scripture, the Word of God, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1.16, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So its intention is to bring that first thing, the righteousness of God revealed by faith, to bring salvation from the consequences of our sins. But unhappily, also, those who reject the gospel of Christ, the Jew first rejects the gospel. The Jews rejected the gospel of Christ first, and they're going to get tribulation and anguish first. Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that does evil, of the Jew first, and also of the Gentile. This also has some dispensational significance and truth to it. Because before the wrath of God is revealed on earth, the time of Jacob's trouble is going to come on earth. And the Jew is going to have tribulation and anguish, which they've never, ever had in their entire history and will never have since, during the time of Jacob's trouble, fostered by the man of sin and Satan who who obsesses him. The Jews will get that first. The Gentile nations will begin to yuck it up, will begin to further their affliction, and then the Lord Jesus Christ will return, and he'll whoop up on the Gentile nations. So, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that does evil, the Jew first, and also the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that works good, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. There is no respect of persons with God. Now, what this is saying is God may have an order or a sequence. He may give out glory and honor to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. He may give out tribulation and anguish to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, but it is not that he is a respecter of persons. He is not a respecter of persons. It doesn't do you any good to be either a Jew or a Gentile. All it does is determine how it is that you'll be judged for your sins. But you will be judged. God's no respecter of persons, and he will judge every man according to their sins. Just as it says there in Romans 2, verse 6, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Now, there's no escaping that. God will render to everyone according to their deeds, period. Now you say, well, wait a minute, there's no escaping that. I thought God offered salvation. If there's no escaping that, if there's no escaping the judgment of God, how is it that I can be saved? Well, that's a wonderful question. I wish you had asked it. God does not avoid the judgment for sins for some and not for others. He put upon our Lord Jesus Christ the judgment for everyone's sin for all time. 
And now the only question is, will you believe it and be in the good of it, or are you going to stand alone without a Savior and see how you do? Not everyone will be punished equally. You're going to be punished according to your sins. Some will be punished more. Some will be punished for their sins less. It's eternal punishment, but hey, some are going to have it better in eternal torments than others will have it in eternal torments. Some will be more tormented than others. Now, if that sounds to you like the lesser of two bad deals, that is exactly what it is. You say, well, can't I escape torments altogether? How is it that I can be in the good of no torment? And the the way to do that, of course, is to receive God's provision in your place for the punishment of your sins, the one whom he laid the iniquity of all of us on the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is exactly how salvation works. And aren't you glad you heard that? We'll be back in just a minute to hear more of the good news and the bad news following this brief announcement. Now, let me insert at this time that the whole world is not today made up of only Jews and Gentiles. Let's first define what is a Jew. Well, a Jew is, in the context of this scripture right here, is one of the children of Israel, well, the house of, the, of one of the tribes of the children of Israel. And those are 12 tribes, and you say, well, I don't know what tribes where nobody does, but there are these who are the children of Israel. Maybe they don't know what tribe they are, but we'll leave that to them and to God. A Gentile, then, what does it take to, be, to qualify to be a Gentile? Well, to not be a Jew. So that's almost everybody. In fact, naturally speaking, it would be everybody, except that today there's also a third group. We get this from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where the Apostle Paul says, giving no offense to anyone, either to Jew, to Gentile, or to the church of God. Now, at the time of the writing of the book of Romans, the one new man, that is the church of God, though known some, was not totally known by the Apostle. Had he known it fully, and he does know it quite well, as you'll see at the end of this book, had he known it completely, however, this wouldn't be the epistle of the Romans, this would be the epistle to the Ephesians, where the progressive revelation of what God was doing finally reached the pen of the apostle. So there are three groups of people in the world. There are Jews, there are Gentiles, and there is the church of God. The church of God has already passed through death into life. The church of God has already passed through the punishment for sins vicariously on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So God didn't ignore my sins. God never has ignored my sins. I am due the punishment for my sins, except that the punishment was placed on somebody else. Jesus Christ earned my salvation, so I get it free. And there's no such thing as a salvation that isn't earned, and there's no such thing as a salvation that is earned by you. There is a salvation that has been earned for all by the Lord Jesus Christ, and the central issue is, will you deal with the truth of that? 
That's what the issue is. And this treatise of Romans takes us so inexorably down the path of that thinking. And it makes perfect sense to us that God is not a respecter of persons. If he was a respecter of persons, he would have some failing, some moral failing. Now, we talked about the word repentance. It is a correction of thinking that is always to the highest moral plane. And so if you have a proper mind and you're looking at things properly, you realize that God cannot be prejudicial towards this person instead of that one because that would be a moral failure, and God has no moral failure. Unhappily today, the gospel not well known, and so people begin to portray, and others may think that God especially cares for this one or that one, and so he waves and ignores their sins. I saw a picture one time, it was a cartoon, and it's a good one, where a guy held up a sign and says, God sees me and not my sins, and he hides behind this sign. Well, everything is open to God. He doesn't ignore anything. And he's too righteous. He's all righteous, so he's too righteous to do nothing about my sins. He dealt out the punishment for my sins. It's just that he dealt it out to my Savior, Jesus Christ. There's no one that doesn't need a Savior. There are only those who don't have a Savior. And you don't get your own personal Savior either. I did not receive Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. He's not my personal Savior, and you can have your own personal Savior. I personally, but I don't have to say I personally did things. Uh, otherwise, the word personally doesn't mean anything. That's like quoting me, saying according to me before I state every sentence. Jesus Christ is not my personal Savior. Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord, period. And I received him. And even then, I can't boast about my reception because he came to me. He came to me, and he persuaded me. And he gave me faith in himself through his word. And I trust also he'll do the same for you, maybe even as you listen to this broadcast. Well, when it tells us that there's no respect of persons with God and that tribulation and anguish or glory and peace come to the Jew first and also the Gentile, now the Scripture is going to go down those two paths. It's going to tell us about what it is to be a Jew as a sinner and what it is to be a Gentile as a sinner. And it's different. It's different to be a sinner as a Jew than to be a sinner as a Gentile, but it's also the same. And so the Scriptures now are going to take us down the path to tell us how it's different, but why the result really is the same. And we come to that in... Romans chapter 2 and verse 12. For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. Now, what is the distinction between the Jew and the Gentile? Well, most specifically, the law of God came to the Jews. It did not go to the Gentiles. There were no Gentiles at Mount Sinai. Moses was a Jew. Moses received the law. God gave his law to Israel. He didn't give it to anybody else. And you say, well, what law? Well, those are the 613 commandments, among which the ten that you may have heard of are the most prominent. 
Now, the Bible says in Romans 2.12, those who sin without law will perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. So if you don't have the law, Gentile, you'll die without the law. And uh, if you're Jewish, you have the law, you'll be judged by the law. Well, what good is that? Well, actually, it's just a different way of being judged. One is judged without the law, the other judged with the law, but both perish alike. And now we have a parenthetical statement in the Scripture in verses 13 through 15 of Romans chapter 2. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. Well, that's very interesting. This is the way that our natural mind works. In fact, merely hearing the law doesn't help, and that's what the Jews did. They heard the law, but they never did it. They never did the law. And so they can't be justified by the law. The only way to be justified the law is to do the whole thing all the time, never fail at it, until you die. No one ever did that except the Lord Jesus Christ. But it was never the intention of the law for that. We'll get to that later in our study. But the point at this time in Romans is that hearers of the law are not justified, but doers of the law. And then it goes to the Gentiles, say these guys don't even have the law, and when they do by nature, when they naturally do the things that are in the law, even when they don't have the law, they demonstrate that they are a law to themselves. And so now we find that the difference between the Gentile and the Jew is the Jew heard the law of God through Moses. God gave it to him nationally, whereas the Gentile merely demonstrates a certain knowledge of law, right and wrong, on his heart. Verse 15, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. And we all have consciences some stronger, some weaker, whatever, but we all have consciences, and that is the knowledge of right and wrong. You take a little child, and that little child, at a very early age, as soon as you can communicate to them in any way, you can tell they have a concept of right and wrong. And, of course, they act it out. It's even funny sometimes. But it's only funny because we don't weep fast enough. And every person shows a knowledge of right and wrong, and then the conscience becomes bad. And here's the problem of conscience. The conscience is an umpire. It accuses or excuses. That's what it does. It either accuses us or excuses us. So we have our conscience. We say, well, what about that thing there? Well, that's okay. That's, that's the excusing. Or, ooh, that was bad. That's the accusing. It's an umpire, dressed in black, wearing a pad, looks down at first base. All he says is safe or out after the fact. He doesn't empower anybody. Why, if an umpire begins to empower someone, they get run out of Nebraska. I mean, what, what would you call an umpire that helps one of the teams? 
I think you'd call that a Texas umpire. Well, that's just a little joke. Not too far from the truth. But an umpire doesn't help. If you want to reach first base, that umpire doesn't give you an extra step, nor does he help the defense and prohibit you, like trip you on your way to first. He merely is there to either accuse or excuse you. And every Gentile, even without the law given, the Gentiles demonstrate that they know right and wrong. They have a sense of law in their own conscience. And so what is the difference? Well, the only difference is the standard by which they'll be judged. The Jew will be judged by the standard of the law that was given to him. The Gentile will be judged by the evidence of the law given on his own heart. My friends, don't risk that judgment. Look instead to the judgment for your sins that was meted out on our Lord Jesus Christ, and there find your bad conscience made good, the just for the unjust, in your place he suffered. And then you'll have a destiny, not of more or less torment, but of eternal joy and peace with our Lord Jesus Christ.